In the Thick of It, a Profit and Loss podcast with Colin Lambert and Galen Stobbs. Hello and welcome to In the Thick of It, Profit and Loss's weekly podcast with myself, Colin Lambert, and as always in New York, Galen Stobbs, editor of P&L. Galen, some, two weeks after the remarkable news that Apple have actually let us onto iTunes, we bring more remarkable news for listeners in the fact that this is actually, we've managed to get through one year of this rubbish. And no oh, one's yeah. kicked us off yet. A whole year. Um, our first podcast, technically, actually, I think a lot of people have been listening to this on Monday, the 10th of June. Technically, the first one was the 11th of June last year, but um, who's going to quibble over 24 hours? Um, I've lost plenty <laughs> of 24 hours in my life, that's for sure. And I just thought, I mean, just very briefly, it's quite interesting because I was looking back at what we, uh, a couple of things we spoke about during that first podcast. And the, the headline news, I guess, was um, Fast Match CEO Dmitry Galinov leaving the firm, which was obviously a surprise to everyone. And it was also sort of the first anniversary of the FX Global Code. We talked about other things, and apparently we were off message according to our write-up. But coincidentally enough, there's actually been a couple of things this week we've published around that, um, around those two articles or those two themes. So yeah, you published an so interview with Euronex. Yeah, so so this was this was a uh, I have to say a piece of sponsored content uh, with Euronex where we did an interview with Kevin Wolf, and it was talking through. Um, it was large. A lot of it was talking about the rebrand uh, from Fast Match to Euronex FX. You know how they were kind of yeah. trying to. To, well, first of all, we've talked about this before in the podcast. It was kind of inevitable and it made sense. But also trying to talk about, you know, for them, that was kind of reflective of the fact that, you know, they're not just an ECN anymore. They have kind of a data business and they're going after a different client base, et cetera, all stuff we've talked about before. So what I wanted to talk to you about today was a couple of things. One was in the interview, we talked about the, um, the initiative they have, which they're launching a Singapore matching engine. I would I think that's an interesting one. Now, in the interview, uh, Kevin Wolf, the CEO of Euronex uh, FX, is, is very explicit in saying that he doesn't see it as Tokyo or Singapore. It's Tokyo and Singapore. Um, do you do you share the same view as him on that? Yes and no. Yes, I believe in the short term it will be Tokyo and Singapore. Um no, I don't think that will be the case long term because I do honestly believe, as I think I've said before on a podcast, Singapore is making a serious play to become the FX market infrastructure center in Asia. Um, you know, Asia is a big, big market in terms of the volume traded. I know it doesn't have the influence of the other regions, but it's a big center in terms of volume traded. Um, and as long as Dolly Yen just sits around 110 for literally years, and the volatility is not there in dollar yen, then yen trading is going to become slightly less important. So therefore, Singapore has the opportunity to to really step in. So I mean, that's I think that's kind of the pitch. I mean, MAS is um, back in a lot of these initiatives. I mean, UBS have announced their plans to cite their FX trading engine there. Standard Chartered have. I think there's two or three other banks about to. Um, a couple of other platforms are as well. I mean, there are incentives on offer from from Singapore government to you know to put your matching engines and your EFX engines in Singapore. I've, I've heard uh, the it, same, yeah. Yeah, and, and and it makes sense because um, there's a tremendous. If you look at the volumes over the past you know decade, or probably a bit a little bit more than a decade now, Singapore, and there's always some doubts around where the numbers come. from how they come to their numbers in Singapore for the Global FX Committee surveys. Um, 
semi-annual because it's not the most detailed report. It's In fact, it's a very undetailed report. It's literally, we did this much and this is how much was done in Singapore dollars. Thank you very much for coming. There's no breakdown <laughs> on you know, whether it was e-trading or anything else, whereas the Tokyo report's a lot more detailed. But at a high level, Singapore volumes have been higher than Japan's. And it's been that way now for quite some time. There's been a definite shift in balance. So I think, yeah, initially it will be Singapore and Tokyo, but I do sense there's momentum building towards Singapore within the industry. There's going to be more and more, you know, as more as the banks look at other banks citing their EFX engines there, um, and I think XTX are in Singapore as well as a major non-bank market maker. I'm not sure about Jump, um, but you know. As these major market makers locate there, then their competition inevitably is going to have to look at it. So I sense there's momentum building for Singapore. For a couple of years, I think it'll run in parallel with Tokyo. But going forward, I wonder if Tokyo will lose its importance because, frankly, it is a centre for yen now and, and not a lot else. You know, Japanese retail it, in yen will keep it alive. It, it's that thing has has... Japan and, and Tokyo become too much of a kind of an insular market? Um, in a way, it was always an insular market, but it just, it, for some reason, and I think this might go back to, we might be getting some deep sort of historical significance here, which we're both truly yeah. incapable of yeah. probably this time of the day. But um, I think during the rebuilding of Japan, a lot of American banks were encouraged to locate there. Um, and it was, frankly, you know, um, I guess you could you could argue it was seen as something of an American colony, as opposed to Singapore being a British colony. So I think you okay. had quite a few American banks go to Japan in the 60s and 70s, and it kind of grew out of that. Um, I remember back in the 80s there were quite a few Asian heads of trading were in Tokyo. Um, but there were also, you know, 40 Japanese banks all doing a shed load of volume. So it was a much more important centre. So, <clears throat> yeah, um, I think Japan is losing its significance because it has become very much a uh, a retail-orientated and yen centre, even more so than before. And the other thing from that interview, which I wanted to, to talk to you about, and we've kind of discussed it before, but we haven't talked about it in a while, so I thought now might be a, a good time, which was the, the Fast Match Now Euronext FX tape. Um, because frankly, quite personally, I wasn't sure when, when Euronext took over Fast Match and when Dimitri left, if they would keep pursuing that with such vigor because you know, the tape was, at least from the outside, very much seen as Dimitri's baby, and he was very keen on this whole idea, and he'd seemingly been very much the driving force behind that. And I've seen other companies, when it happens, you know, other people come in, they don't have the same enthusiasm for a certain project or business mm. line, particularly one that's just getting off the ground, it kind of, you know, loses that internal political capital. But it seems that, that Euronext has very much embraced the tape, um, they very much like the idea. Um, you're talking about the yen a moment ago, actually. One of the um, the comments that, that Kevin Wolf makes in the interview, um, which was people are starting to pay attention to the tape more, he says now, because of things like the yen flash crash, where he said they had a lot of trade prints on the tape in the moments leading up to the event. Um, and he says, you know, I'm not a quant, but I know enough to know that if I was a quant, I could have maybe done something with that information. Um, I know they're talking mm -hmm. about how, you know, central banks are looking at it. Basically, the, the, the theme and the idea they're trying to push is that the people are looking at this more now. 
do you think, and I looked at the, the volumes earlier, it's, it's, it's ranging around, it's moving around, but let's, let's say it's about the 100 billion range. Um, to you, is that, is that critical mass? Have they reached a, a point where it starts to have real value and meaning to people now? Well, I think you have to say yes. <clears throat> because if you look at the big FX platforms, you know, EBS does around 70 to 80 yards a day. CME in a non-roll month does around 80 to 90 yards a day, and that includes FX options. Um, Reuters is doing around 90 yards a day. They're seen as the primary venues. If a tape is reporting 100 yards worth of volume, then you could argue that that tape is, is also has, got, has achieved significant um, critical mass. The only question would be, um, you know, Reuters, we don't look at Reuters, they, with all due disrespect to that company, Refinitiv, sorry, I've said Reuters three times now, haven't I? Yeah, with all due disrespect to Refinitiv, um, we don't look at the company's data for uh, euro and yen. Because nothing's traded on matching in those in those products. So it's not the primary venue for those markets. Likewise with EBS. Um, we don't look at EBS for sterling Aussie and Kiwi and, and some emerging market currencies because it's just not a primary venue. The, where is the tape's strength? I think that's the key. Where is this 100 yards? Yeah. Could it spread across five five currency pairs, 20 yards each? Yeah, maybe there's some there's some good critical mass there. But if this is actually over, you know, 15 currency pairs, <clears throat> then it becomes a bit of a different issue for me. Um, I think it's interesting that Kevin came up with the yen because obviously the, one of the criticisms of the tape was it does report a lot of small trades that don't necessarily have a huge impact on, on the market. Um, you could argue in the quant age whether, you know, what's more important, a thousand trades of, you know, $100,000 or 10 million, one trade of 10 million um, going through the tape. But um, if it is yen, then, yeah, it could become seen as a, as a primary market for yen because there's a lot of Japanese retail trades being reported on it. I mean, for me, that's other, the other question is, I mean, you said if it's spread across a bunch of currencies, it might not have that much value. But, but for me, equally, if it's just in the big currencies, I mean, if it's, you know, mostly euro dollar, for example, right? Yeah. I can get a lot of good euro dollar data out there. It's not necessarily that advantageous to me to have another source no. that's mostly euro dollar data. So I, I would be intrigued yeah. to see what the the currency kind of breakdown is on that tape where, you know, by contrast, right, if it's doing a hundred billion and it's got loads of, you know, it won't, but loads of EM currencies in there, well, then actually that's really interesting, valuable Absolutely. information to me. <clears throat> Yeah, it comes down to percentages of the market that's out there. Probably, well, how much is you know being reported? <clears throat> Sorry, I'm having my weekly um, throat, frog in throat moment. Um, I mean, yeah, they. I think in May it did like 91 yards a day was reported on the tape. It's important to know that last year, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a year ago, but it was like I think it was October, November, September, October, November time. There were a couple of months there where it did more than that. So. I do also wonder if the tape is hitting its natural ceiling. I think I might have mentioned this before on a podcast. Um, it needs data from other platforms, and it needs data from the big players, you know, like the banks, and that's going to be their biggest challenge, is getting that stuff onto the tape. Because then you could have an exponential leap, and then you will get a much more significant market share 
in each currency pair. All right. Um, next up on the agenda, that was, wasn't our smoothest segue, but it's all I've got. Um, Colin, you, you have in your um, column this week, you have, I don't know what face to call that, disconcerted look. That's the picture you went with this week. Yeah, actually, if it comes from, I, I, I think I prefer it when I can bemused, should we say? Yeah, yeah, that's that's quite a good way of describing it. I mean, it's, um, it's quite off-putting actually having to pick a picture of yourself. Um, I kind of preferred it when I could actually just put any sort of old graphic up there. But yeah, um, so really, both things this week have been because uh, the end of last week saw the oral arguments in Mark Johnson's appeal against conviction for fraud or wire fraud, whatever whatever they're throwing at him this week, because the government's position does change, I have to say. Um, I've, I mean, I've written about it extensively. Yesterday's column got a lot of feedback because I do think, and I'm not alone in this, Yeah, my point was I think his counsel kind of dropped the ball um, because here was an opportunity to explain to the appeal judges in the 15 or so minutes that you have exactly why the government's case was weak um, and exactly how the FX market works. What worried me was there were repeated in, uh, references to um, securities markets, i.e. equities and exchanges. They're different markets. It's a different market structure. They're, they're, I mean, there's so many inconsistencies in the government's case. I've gone through them before. But even here, you know, like their council was talking about, well, yeah, they bought £1.2 billion in two minutes leading up to the fix, and that's what caused the market to ramp. Well, that's fine, but why isn't you know his counsel out there saying, yeah, but can you imagine, Your Honours, whatever they call judges over there, how much the market would have moved had you bought to double that amount in half the time? It, you know, you can do the math. It's not that difficult. It's going to cause some sort of disruption to the market. Um, and yeah, I just kind of got the feeling that the council was just like arguing legal niceties when they could have been in there being a lot punchier. Um, yeah, the cartel got off. Some people consider the cartel were quite lucky to get off, but they got off because everyone said that's how we did things. Well, pre-hedging large orders and um, using code words to keep the confidentiality in place were normal ways to handle these orders. And I kind of feel that the um, that his counsel didn't get that message across. I got um, several messages from people. Um, who were in court and have listened to the transcript the same as I have, sorry, the uh, listened to the tape the same as I have, um, and generally much, generally there's pretty much agreement on that. I mean, I got some very strong feedback from one trader who's not related to Mark Johnson, and as far as I'm aware, has never worked with Mark Johnson, and may not even have met him. Um, but he sort of turned around and said, no, he said he thought it was appalling, the way they they went about it. So. What it's done, it's kind of, for those people that are following it closely, it's kind of shifted the balance. The thinking was that actually he had a really good chance. One guy came to me and said, look, I would have put this at 80-20, he'd, he'd win his appeal. After hearing those arguments, I thought the council dropped the ball to the degree that I now think it's 55-45 that he'll win the appeal. And that's kind of the, the sense that we've got out there, which I think is a bit of a, is a, is a, bit of a concern because... Obviously, it's a concern for Mark Johnson, his family and friends, but 
um, it's also a concern for the industry because there are several practices that he's accused of conducting that are condoned by the global code. But uh, I'm just and the, I'm just asking this question. Obviously, I don't know uh, Mark Johnson yeah. or, or the council. But do you not think that, that Mark would have said to them? You know, they've obviously discussed this at length, and he, I assume, would have made the same points that you have. Um, do you think he would have not, you know, pointed all of this out to them in the past? That is the big mystery. Um, someone else made that point to me as well, actually, and it's a good point, and I don't have the answer to the question. The only thing I would say is I think when it gets to appeals courts, you have specialist lawyers come in for that um, who may not have been involved throughout the case. Um, now, I suspect that the lady who was representing him has been involved for quite some time, because I've seen her name on legal documents. I don't know how closely. Um, and it could just be this is a quirk of how the appeal system works, that you don't you don't really go into the arguments. Um, just to me, it just seems, and to a lot of people, it seems so fundamental to his appeal that this was the best way to do it. Um, there was no breaking of the NDA because nobody outside of HSBC learns of it. And frankly, if you want to make an, if you want to make a big order public, there's one way to do it, and that's try and execute the whole bloody thing in one in one minute. Um, but yeah, I, I, it could be a quirk of the system. That is a question that I'd love to be able to get the answer to, and I don't know, and I don't think anyone does. Um, Otherwise, you've got, a, be... you've got a backup career waiting for you as a uh, defence attorney, Colin. <laughs> well, it has been it has been mentioned that I could argue with myself for quite some time. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah. Um, I mean, the other thing I would point out is the slight right on Monday is that, you know, one of the judges in the um, in the appeal court sort of turned around and said, he, I, I'm going to paraphrase this because I haven't got it exactly. But he, um, he basically turned around and said, you know, can you explain to me why, if we acquit Mark Johnson and grant his appeal, um, this will not lead to a return of the Wild West in foreign exchange? Um, that caught a few headlines. Um, naturally, because it would. Um, there was no mention, I mean, and, and again, this to me was a missed opportunity, because I think that's when you can turn around and say, well, we have a thing called the FX Global Code that has been created by central banks and market participants. 700 participants have signed up to it. Now, you and I have had a few sceptical eyebrows raised at when we keep on hearing the same numbers and we know there's a heavy bias to the sell side, but this is a sell side issue. What these judges are dealing with is a sell side issue. I look at it and go, why the hell did you not just turn around and say, if I may inform your honours of whatever you call judges, um, the FX industry has developed the FX Global Code. Um, it lays out principles. It says exactly you know, what, what areas are, are, are taboo. Alongside that, the... Um, surveillance of dealers is absolutely tremendous. You know, they can't breathe now. There was another thing that was released this week we reported on from Digital Reasoning where they launched an AI version to look at, you know, to analyze the voice chats much quicker. So the level of surveillance in the global code, and incidentally, you could argue that I'm not sure Mark Johnson actually broke any principles of the global code. Um, I haven't got into it in any real depth, but my instinct is that that's the case. Um, why do they not just turn around and say that? You're worried about the Wild West? We're taking care of it. It's called the Global Code and Greater Surveillance. And 
to me that should have been the end, the end of the the end of the issue. They could have made it a lot easier. I think I put it on Twitter or something. They could have made it a lot easier for the judges to grant his appeal, and they didn't. And that's what's got me and a few other people in the industry a little bit upset. So one other thing, actually, I mean, while we're on surveillance and conduct, something else that was quite um, loud this week in the sort of in, in our circles, in, in, in my debating circle, was um, the authorities got a bit noisy on the LIBOR transition this week. Now, yeah. this is not, this is not normal ground for us. I know. <laughs> But we do call it in the thick of it, so I suppose we'd better do something to do with the FI um, bit of it once in a while. Um, I mean, I thought it was quite interesting because the authorities making noise always makes me think they're worried about something. There is definitely something going on. Um, And I think in this case, it's the fact that they're worried that it's not going to work. So I looked at the, the FSB paper, Financial Stability Board paper, which looked at the transition to benchmarks, blah, blah, blah. And effectively, um, it went through the different uh, models, you know, that we can use. And I was looking at the thing, and I I spoke to someone briefly about it and said, like, so what they're trying to say is um, if you change to OIS type rates, so overnight index swaps, so we're trying to benchmark three, six, one-year loans or deposits on an overnight rate. Now, it struck struck me that what they were trying to say was, and I'm trying to explain this in as basic language as I can because, frankly, that's the the only way I know it. Um, But there's two ways of doing it. It's like you you can set the rate in advance and you can set the rate in arrears, and there's a hybrid they're talking about coming out with. But what it comes down to is we've got people trying to um, revalue three, six, one year, and maybe longer loans on overnight rates. I don't see how that works. It's just, okay, your value that, you know, supposing there's something happens in, in the interest rate market and there's a cash shortage, and all of a sudden the OAS pops up, um, and that client is paying a lot more money for the next three months for what is a quirk of the market in one month. Now, they get around this by saying, we'll have average rates. And their idea is that you have in arrears average rate. So if you were looking at a three-month benchmark <clears throat> fix, you would go back of three months' data of um, OIS, so three months of overnight rates. What's the average? That's your three-month benchmark. I don't understand this stuff that well, but that to me seems to be nonsense. Whatever happened to an interest rate curve? We all talk about what happens down the curve. There is no curve if everyone's dealing with overnight interest rate, overnight interest swaps, OIS. So <clears throat> you're looking at, okay, this is what it was the last three months. If I'm a hedger, and this is the people we're meant to be trying to protect here, then the, what I want to know is my cost of hedging. And I want to know that up front before I pick the hedge. How am I going to do that if I'm not going to be given the rate I'm hedged at for another three or six months? And it will be the average of the last three, the last three to six months. I just don't get how it works. Equally, well, if you do it in I- advance, as I've just said, it becomes a problem. Go on. I say all I know is I saw Bank of England Deputy Governor Dave Ramsden on Bloomberg TV before saying that this is good news for London as a financial centre, and I thought at last, good news for dear old Blighty. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm not quite sure how he's managing to leave that one in because I think because there's well, and people on TV don't like suffer, right? Yeah, well, I know. Yeah, call me a cynic. Yeah, I, the, I guess the problem for me is if you're looking at um, you know the US in particular is trying to push away from the eyeballs, and that's fine. I get that they were you know there was misconduct around them and they were manipulated, not to the harm of everybody, but to some people. Um, again, I'll go back to my point that I was saying with the Wild West. We have surveillance on these things. We have different ways of actually measuring these things now. But what this leads me to believe is we have a we don't have a curve anymore, an interest rate curve. And that, to me, is a real worry because that's how you work out your hedging. That's how you work out your pricing in FX swaps, for instance. And that's how you manage your balance sheet. There's plenty more out there as well. Without a curve... You can't do this. And it seems to me they're trying to say we can do this all, we're all going to retrofit this. I don't think retrofitting works. The last point on this was someone sent me this um, overnight. So it's um, the FCA in London sent out a Dear CEO letter, which sounds really nice. <clears throat> Talking about the transition to uh, the feedback to their Dear CEO letter on the feedback to transition to risk free rates. <clears throat> and my correspondent highlighted one paragraph. And it says, where are we? Many responses flag the need for market consensus and regulatory intervention as key dependencies inhibiting transition plans. Absolutely no idea what that means. Some firms have therefore adopted a wait-and-see approach. While we recognize some of these dependencies, we would urge firms proactively to consider not just how they engage with these initiatives and the role they have in helping deliver consensus, but also what contingency plans they have in place if these solutions do not materialize or where the proposed use case is quite limited. Again, no idea. My correspondent basically turned around and said, well, what they're really saying there is actually, um, everybody, if you could really help us out here, do us a favor, get out there and start making markets and taking risk. That's what they're saying there. Okay. Um, sorry, isn't this exactly what Volcker and what um, other rules, you know, other rules out there have stopped? So are they going full circle? Seems to me they are. And it's just another example of muddled regulation. I mean, in many ways, we're quite, we're quite lucky that FX isn't heavily involved in all of this because frankly, it's a nightmare. But anyway, that's the end of the FI bit of in the thick of it for probably this year. Okay. Now we can go <laughs> on to, back onto ground that I understand a little more. Okay, that's good, yeah. And me, what, what is it? <clears throat> uh, what else? Was I oh, so I went to a, um, I went to a Bloomberg <laughs> Invest uh, event today talking about things that I actually didn't understand. Um, and <laughs> um, so I only I only popped in briefly. There was one there was one interesting session I saw. Most of it was macro, which was of course dominated by China and trade and and all these things yep. that our our listeners can read more educated people than I um, talk about very easily online. Um, one thing that I did uh, think was interesting was they had one um, session with they had three. Um, senior kind of investors um, talking about you know areas they liked, areas they didn't, various problems, etc. And um, my ears pricked up when I were, when I heard uh, one quote which reminded me why uh, the general public is so fond of the financial services industry, where they were talking about the uh, the struggles of, of Europe's economy, and um, 
Bob Diamond, who was formerly CEO of Barclays and now heads up uh, Atlas Merchant Capital, um, came out with the line talking about Europe, where there's crisis, it creates opportunity, which, uh, mm. yes, that was a, a, a great soundbite there for the masses. Um, but, but, but I thought what was interesting um, when he went on from that point was to talk about was that uh, basically how, how Atlas Munch Capital is operating, for example. So they bought uh, a failing French bank's license. Um, they didn't want any other part of the bank. They just wanted the license, basically. Uh, they didn't want any of the legacy technology except all using new digital technology, hiring a bunch of young fintech people. Um, and, and they were saying, he was saying, you know, that, that bank now has zero non-performing loans. He said there's opportunity, but not with the legacy technology, the legacy loans, the legacy talent. Um, and then he went on to say in a separate bit later on, um, he was saying that, that no elected official in this day and age wants to ever bail out a bank again. Um, and that's why we see you know, the, capital, the banks have to be more heavily capitalized than ever before. The regulation's been so heavy, especially if you're a, a SIFI, a, a, was it a significantly yeah. important financial institution, that there's huge regulatory and capital requirements around them. But he was saying, if you, if you fall below this level, he found, him and his firm have found that the regulators are actually massively supportive. Um, and he said he was very, very surprised how supportive central banks in places like Italy and Greece have been of, you know, challenger banks that they've kind of worked with and created that, that kind of aren't systemically important that aren't as kind of intertwined in the kind of global financial system. Um, and so you say, you know, it's, it's tough for the very big banks out there, but if you're kind of a smaller one, it's actually, there's a lot of opportunity, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's back to regulation again. Um, I, I find that, that interesting. It's been a well, heavy week. It has, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I find that interesting as well because, um, Yes, I get the globally significant piece of it, but um, the first time one of these banks goes under and a certain number of voters lose their life savings, then the regulators all pay very, very close attention to it. Um, I think it's inevitable the regulatory creep will go down. Um, maybe he's trying to make hay while the sun shines. Fair enough. Um there's the other issue, of course, of collectively, if you've got, you know, 10 challenger banks just underneath this imaginary threshold, um, or not imaginary threshold anymore, but if you've got 10 challenger banks just underneath this threshold, are the authorities actually looking at them collectively? Because collectively, if they're all doing a similar sort of thing, and they're, you know, they're offering the same sort of products, collectively they become just as big an issue as, a, as one bank that's, you know, the same size as 10 of them. So I think that's a pretty short-term phenomena, I would say, in, in that one. Um, <clears throat> is there room for these firms? Yeah, but you know, we're already seeing it with some of these sort of challenger banks elsewhere in the world that you know, they're, they're running into trouble. So do you think, do you think, I think the challenger banks thus far have, have been um, retail-focused. Could you see challenger yep. banks creeping into the investment side? No. Um, we're talking about a very conservative group uh, on the investor side, and I think the due diligence they'd have to run through. Um, yeah, we've spoken about this before on the podcast. Look at the, you know, it's a, it's a scale thing. You know, investors will only put certain monies with certain funds because they don't want to be too much of the, um, you know, the funds under management. Um, yeah, they're dealing with larger institutions. 
um, or they're deemed in an exchange environment. Um, I think that will be a real challenge for them because, yeah, I, I'm not sure how they get through their due diligence process. Investors are a very conservative group. I, I think they are until you wave enough money in front of them. So look at what happened in cryptocurrencies 2017. Everyone lost their head. <laughs> yeah, and we're still too much I, trying to institutionalize it. So yeah, it was true, but I, What happened in crypto was retail. What happened in challenges is retail. And, and I think both will face the same challenge in becoming institutionalized. I still think you and, and by the way, the the two thousand seventeen the a lot of it didn't get institutional investment, but not because institutions the institutional players didn't want access to it. There I guess I guess that does back up your argument there just wasn't kind of the means or the or the ways. But yeah, I think due if, diligence if, didn't if, if, uh, if uh I think I think it was less a due diligence thing, I think it was more kind of an, an infrastructure. There was literally no means for them to effectively yeah. Uh, do it. Yeah, to a um, degree, yeah. But, uh, I mean, and even then, these you know small little hedge funds are getting seed money from somewhere. Um, but I don't know. I still think I still think investors, if you – there's a challenger bank that appears that's just, you know, I was about to say printing money, but that was probably a bad analogy to use for a bank. <laughs> um, <laughs> Might be accurate in some cases. <laughs> yeah. Um, But I suspect if if there's something out there, a a bank comes to market that's making enough money, I suspect investors will find a way to invest their money in it. Mm. Uh, Yeah, okay. I mean, we're going to close out in a second, but to a related topic, um, we reported this week that State of Global Markets has shut their prime of prime business. In FX. Yeah. Now, I'm not sure what this means for the company, because as far as I was understood, State of Global Markets was literally just a prime of prime. So it could be the, the company's shutting its doors. And it did so because, um, while, of course, while it had a hugely successful business, its shareholder wasn't, wasn't willing to pump in the funds, enabling it to run the business at the same level it had done. Now, I would tip my hat to the firm for explicitly saying, look, you know, we're, we're doing this because we cannot we're not willing to run an inferior service and try and get away with it while we find another investor. But um, I would also say it's a question of, you know, as we were just saying there with the institutionalization and the challenger banks, um, they were making money, but to actually maintain the business needs constant investment. And you've got to make a huge amount of money to be able to invest your own. It's, you know, can you make enough profits to fund your technology? You can at a certain scale. But otherwise, you rely on other investments. So I kind of see a link there between the two things there, the Challenger Bank and the Prime Prime environment, where highly yeah. competitive, and it's going to get more competitive. And the more competitive it gets, the more you're going to see people fall by the wayside. So, yeah, I mean, time time may well disprove my theory. It wouldn't be the first time, um, but we shall see. Um, we will close out there. Quick reminder, you can obviously download this on the iTunes store now. One year in, we start we start our second year next week, and who knows what will happen. Thanks very much for listening. We'll be back next week.